Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Malk. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are talking about close reading for characterization. I think we've talked about close reading in last season and, and assignments to help with that, but not specifically for characterization. Right. Um, And Paige, I don't know if you have this too, where especially in like my intro literature classes, my students love to throw the word characterization around. Like when we talk about, oh, first impressions of the novel, what, what stood out to you? What'd you like? What didn't you like? Characterization is one of the first things said. And when I ask like, oh, tell me more about that. No follow-up. It's like a term that they pick up in their high school English classes that they're like, characterization is important, but they don't quite know what it means still or how it works. I feel like a lot of my students use it for I liked this character. Yes. Therefore, I liked the characterization. I think that um, is exactly what it is. I'm using as a placeholder for I like this character. I find I find them interesting, entertaining, engaging. Um, and I don't know that they use it as much in the opposite way, right? Where I don't like this character because it's almost like if they don't like a character or they don't connect with a character or see like the purpose in the narrative for a character. Um, they're like, well, that's bad characterization. And it's like, uh, no, that's not exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. Like there's always pushback when they don't personally like the character, like when it's not someone they'd want to be friends with. And then they're like, what a bad job. This is not a relatable character. And, or, and that idea too, that character should be likable and relatable. And it's like, that's not the purpose. Yeah, that maybe doesn't have anything to do with how they carry or contribute to the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. What are some ways we can help start our students thinking about characterization and the techniques used for characterization and why even does characterization matter at all? Mm, Good questions. I mean, and so it's also, those questions are connected to, um, why we're talking about close reading again. And I think that part of why we're talking about it through a specific lens like characterization is because sometimes terms or techniques for reading um, become catch-alls like we start, like we were talking about with characterization and somehow lose their specificity with students, right? Um, And we, or I, will say I, let's do I statements. I made the mistake of assuming that students have this tool set to read or or complete reading tasks without me necessarily defining them before in the past. Um, And so I think part of what we're doing this episode is, is saying like, we always, we can't make the assumption that students fully understand, like understand close reading. Like maybe they understand close reading, but when we add that lens of characterization to it, do they know how to go forward there? Um, and can, what kind of like clear instruction can we give to help them better understand like the goal or purpose of close reading? Um, and that it's not just about making observations, but it's about making observations in a sort of targeted way 
or a purposeful way so that you can then turn those observations into analysis. Yeah, it gives that concrete process for a concrete goal, which is going to help our students build concrete skills of like, if it's just like, go ahead and close read, they'll pick a passage they like. And that, that can be sometimes a great way to start conversations, but I agree with you. Like they need more grounding to really start developing those analytical skills and not just that this is what I like. This is what I don't like. Right. This is what I noticed, uh, but I don't know what to do with the things that I've noticed or how to take them forward and make any sort of claims about them. Yeah. So I guess we're talking a little bit about some objectives here. So what are some objectives this would cover? Well, I mean, I'll start with number three on our notes, but understanding the difference between close reading observations and analysis. And I think even we might um, throw in there the difference between close reading, summary, and analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are the those you know tiers, right? So what do we do when we summarize? How's that different than what we are doing when we're close reading, even though they're, they're connected? And then how's that different from when you're asked to analyze um, and use evidence from a passage. Yeah. And I think there's steps there with that, like that you're hinting at, like where students, when they're just starting out, they can like summarize a passage. And then second step, they can tell you like things that they're observing, like, oh, there's a use of a symbol in here. Oh, they're using imagery. Oh, we're getting this sort of vocabulary. Um, And they can point things out in the passage, but then getting to that next step of like, well, why do, why do these things matter? What, what do they mean? Um, And I'm sure I'm not the only one who has received um, like essays, mini assignments, whatever, where the student is making an argument in their thesis statement, but then each body paragraph is just um, a different passage. Like in this passage, this happens. In this passage, this happens. And they're almost to those close reading skills. They're observing but they're not taking that next step fully. They're just like, here are all the passages that would support this argument. But I haven't actually supported the argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely happens. Um, and you can see like from their perspective, how that would happen mm-hmm. uh, and, and why they hit that wall, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so getting them over that wall, I think reading text through characterization of, how is the writer creating this character? What techniques are they using? Why are they creating this sort of character? Like, why does this character matter? What does this characterization mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, I like, oh, sorry, Margaret. No, no, you go. Well, I like these questions that you have here too. Like, I think that those questions, um, and you should read some of them, are really helping would really help students move from those observational points to some analytical points. Yeah. So what Paige is talking about is uh, an assignment that I do when I teach Nella Larson's passing, which I've talked about before. Um, Passing, I think, is a really 
really helpful novel for teaching close reading skills because the ending is so ambiguous. So if you want to figure out what happens in the end, you have to be paying attention to all the small moments and, and creating that like case for yourself of, I think this is what happens because of this moment and, and making that sort of analytical work. Um, but so much of that comes down to how these characters are characterized. So like, who do you think would be capable of what and what evidence do we have for that? So when I start teaching um, passing, I do a breakdown with my students of like the context of the novel. Um, but we also start with looking at passages um, with some questions. So I, don't, I guess I can walk through the whole thing just because. I, I would like to hear you walk through the whole thing. So I have a few, three passages that we really focus on. And I first go through just all three passages to get them um, thinking about them with one another directly, because one of my goals is for them to remember these scenes exist in context. We don't pull them out and say, look at what happens in this scene. We want to look at that, but we want to also be making connections to the larger work, to other scenes, because close reading is about how it's creating that larger picture. So when you say that you go through those passages, do you read them aloud in class? Do you have a printout? Yes. What do you do? Um, so I, in this scenario, I have pre-selected the passages. Sometimes mm -hmm. for other works, I ask my students to come to class prepared with here. passages, but here I have the ones that I, I've selected and I have them on the board uh, um, being projected. And so I ask students, volunteers to read them. And we read the first passage and I ask for their immediate impressions that they've already read them because um, they've read, they've done the reading for this day. So yeah. I, uh, we pull it out because I want them to focus on it. But I ask them like, what were your immediate responses? What's standing out to you? And we push it with, with that. Um, I like the way she's saying this. I didn't understand this. Um, and those are the questions we start with. What did you like? What did you not like? What surprised you? What confused you? Mm -hmm. And those are our observational questions of, okay, we're going to get what's, what's standing out to readers. And then we eventually build on that. So the three passages are all from the first section of passing where you're getting the lay of the land. And for those of you who have not read Passing, it is about two women in Chicago who are both um, mixed race and can pass as white. One has chosen to live in the black community, married a black man, raising black sons. And the other has married a white supremacist who does not know her background. And she's had a white daughter with him and things, escalate quickly. <laughs> um, but so the first passage we read is um, if. It was that if which bothered her. It might be, it might just be in spite of all gossip and even appearances to the contrary, that there was nothing, had been nothing, that couldn't be simply and innocently explained. Appearances she knew now had a way of sometimes not fitting facts. And if Claire hadn't 
Well, if they had all been wrong, then certainly she ought to express some interest in what had happened to her. It would seem queer and rude if she didn't. But how is she to know? There was, she at last decided, no way. So she merely said again, I must go, Claire. Please, not so soon, Reen, Claire begged, not moving. Irene thought, she's really almost too good looking. It's hardly any wonder that she, and we bring that out with my students. It's the very first passage we read. And inevitably, one of the things they come up with, what confused you, is those silences. Uh That Nella Larson has these dashes where the narrator, Irene, cuts herself off. And so we start talking about that in terms of what Irene is willing to say about Claire and what she's not willing to say and that tension. Um, And that we're being told we're not getting the full picture. We're we're having information withheld, but also um, why? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And that part of this characterization, um, they talk about like, the gossip, um, not fitting facts, things like that. Like, where are we getting this from? Um, And then they also always pick up on the, she's almost too good looking. Where they're like, well, what does that mean? And I think that is something they're interested in because especially for female characters, one of the ways they're characterized is their appearance. Right. And so it's comfortable, it's familiar. Um, but that she's almost too good looking allows them a way into also critique that sort of appearance-based characterization of like beauty standards, how they're tied to race class. It's fun. Yeah. Um, It also sounds like this is a great passage for, um, pointing out to them that authors will use characters to hide things from us. mm -hmm. Um, and that we can't always assume that we're getting the full story or that, we're getting a reliable story um, and that that's not always apparent like throughout a, a narrative. Yeah. And you'll see with the other two passages, it really compounds that. Mm-hmm. And so it starts building and we talk about like, what are the techniques here? We can see the technique using punctuation, just something as simple as that. Those use of dashes is giving us that information. So how Nell Larson is using punctuation to highlight the um unreliability of this um so we talk about that word choice punctuation um the passage starts with if question mark if um and so highlighting that like this is a character who doesn't have all the information and knows it um and then our next passage i have one more question before you go to that next passage um with that when you're talking about punctuation, when you ask students to volunteer to read, um, do, like, how do they handle that punctuation? Um, it varies. Or, or do you have to prep them to handle it? Um, um, it's, no, I don't prep it. Maybe I should. But one of the things that's interesting is because they're not sure, it also highlights it where they go. And if Claire hadn't, and they're not sure what to do with the dash. So they always kind of pause anyways. Ah, perfect. Collective confusion of the class of how do you read a dash aloud um, mm-hmm. makes them bring, bring it up. So there's something there. And I think that's one of the nice things about reading passages aloud 
is that it highlights techniques that students are so accustomed to when they read to themselves, but reading it out loud really emphasizes things that they might gloss over right. when reading at home, um, certain word choices, um, certain sentence structures, things like that. Um, yeah, I imagine that they would kind of pass over that um, reading it at home. Mm-hmm. Or, or I would imagine like the average student reader would, yeah. would yeah, they do. keep moving, right? Um, yeah, we use dashes all the time in literature. Like it's not something that they're like, oh, a dash, how unusual. <laughs> right. Um, and and it's it's interesting. And they hear the different like rhythms that I think is really helpful as well. Um in terms of when is it building momentum, when is momentum interrupted, which gets glossed over. Um, and so this actually applies to the next passage because there's some play with like sentence structure um, and it continues that appearance space. So we end that first passage with the, she's almost too good looking. And the next passage I pull out is a physical description of Claire from Irene. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we get, just as she'd always had that pale gold hair, which, unsheared still, was drawn loosely back from a broad brow, partly hidden by the small close hat. Her lips, painted a brilliant geranium red, were sweet and sensitive and a little obstinate, a tempting mouth. The face across the forehead and cheeks was a trifle too wide, but the ivory skin had a peculiar soft luster, and the eyes were magnificent, dark, sometimes absolutely black, always luminous and set in long black lashes, arresting eyes, slow and mesmeric, and with, for all their warmth, something withdrawn and secret about them. Ah, surely, they were Negro eyes, mysterious and concealing, and set in that ivory face under that bright hair, there was about them something exotic. Yes, Clara Kendry's loveliness was absolute, beyond challenge, thanks to those eyes which her grandmother and later her mother and father had given her. And again, reading that out loud, first thing students point out that they're uncomfortable with is that sentence, they were Negro eyes, where they're like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, what's happening here? So we get to start talking about this. Um, How is this description based on race? And they start talking about that. They talk about the gold hair. They talk about the ivory skin. And then we start talking about, well, how is it challenging race? So we read with the grain, we read against the grain. It's still a little bit with the grain, I guess, against culture. Mm -hmm. And they start to unpack like Nella Larson is gives us all these stereotypical descriptions of beauty because that's what they first look at. Like, oh, she has golden hair. She has ivory skin. She has red lips. Um, And then they're like, but that's not what's being said is beautiful here. We're throwing out all those white beauty standards and it's her blackness that's making her beautiful. Um, And that it's the eyes like, and so that we get into that. We talk about the context of the word, for that time period versus now. And so like how someone was writing today, they would say black eyes with a capital B and that this is the source of her beauty. And we talk about, well, what does that mean? What is that telling us about this character, about the person describing her? And as we move into that, how does that, what does this tell us about the person describing her? They go back to that fragment 
a tempting mouth where they're like well is she is she being tempted by her like is she into her and then we get to start talking about that a little like she doesn't say she's tempted by her but why would you call a mouth tempting unless you are tempted what is the temptation um and that's not and it's depending on the class what they how they're breaking down tempting changes okay um they always talk about the sexual temptation but some of them will start to think about well what other things mouths can do and like talking um uh, yeah and so what does that mean like and 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 if you read the book like claire is a talker and she can talk you into things mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we get that so we get to talk about that layered meaning for characterization we get to talk about cultural norms and how they affect characterization so like I gender ideals, right. race ideals, and how they're and how characterizations could also challenge those. So you can have characterizations that conform and characterizations that challenge, but also that this really comes down to perspective, both of like the other characters, but also the author. Like we talk about that Nella Larson is a black woman writing about black women. Like this, she has a vested interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like the idea of black women being beautiful is not accidentally getting into the text. We get into like a lot of the word choices with this, that a little obstinate, peculiar luster, withdrawn secret, like the strange and the term exotic, just sort of talk about that word choice. And then we move on to that, the final passage, which is actually the very, very beginning of the novel. And so it is, it was the last letter in Irene Redfield's little pile of morning mail. After her other ordinary and clearly directed letters, the long envelope of thin Italian paper with its almost illegible scrawl seemed out of place and alien. And there was too something mysterious and slightly furtive about it. A thin sly thing, which bore no return address to betray the sender. Not that she hadn't immediately known who its sender was, Some two years ago, she had one very like it in outward appearance, furtive, but in some peculiar, determined way, a little flaunting, purple ink, foreign paper of extraordinary size. It had been, Irene noted, postmarked in New York the day before. Her brows came together in a tiny frown. The frown, however, was more from perplexity than from annoyance, though there was in her thoughts an element of both. She was wholly unable to comprehend such an attitude towards danger as she was sure the letter's contents would reveal, and she disliked the idea of opening and reading it. This, she reflected, was was of a piece with all that she knew of Claire Kendry, stepping always on the edge of danger, always aware, but not drawing back or turning aside, certainly not because of any alarms or feeling of outrage on the part of others. And even though this is the first passage after reading those other two students are really prepared to start breaking this one down. Um, so talking about that, the way Irene is seeing Claire and that this is a very biased characterization and that this is, we will only see Claire through Irene's perspective and she sees her as furtive, uh, 
uh, a betrayer, furtive, foreign, exotic. So because we have the previous passage where we talk about that exoticness of Claire, when we read that foreign envelope, students are prepared to be like, oh, the envelope is a metonym or, or synecdoche, mm-hmm. I can't remember, but like a stand-in. And so how do we take those descriptions of the envelope and the letter and apply them to Claire? So the ink, the paper size, all of that. And there, we also talk about that fragment stepping always on the edge of danger. And what does that mean for what we then find out about Claire? And so I I think what you said is that these passages are out of order in terms of the narrative, right? Yeah. So they all come from the first like three chapters and each chapter is like a few pages Mm -hmm. long. So they all come from the first um, like 15 pages of the novel. But this last one is the very first three paragraphs. Yeah. And so I also find this interesting because it seems like this activity sort of can be used for that conversation about rereading, which we've also Mm -hmm. talked about before. Now, going back to that passage, after you've read the first 15 pages, going back to those first three paragraphs, it highlights a lot of new things um, or things you might have not understood or put the pieces together with until after you finish those first three chapters. Yeah. And that is like really an opportunity that I don't think I emphasize enough to my students, but that when you're close reading and building these connections going back and that what confused you, what in this passage confused you and how is it answered later mm-hmm. <laughs> with these questions, I think would be really useful. Um, and so after we read these three passages, then I put questions on the board um, and the questions, they vary depend, um, but they're usually something like in what passage, in what, pa- in which passages does the character describe themselves? In which passages do other characters describe that particular character? Um, how are we told what the character desires or fears or values? Um, what passages describe their relationship with their community or with others? Um, how is perspective affecting this? How are symbols being used? What are other techniques that are helping us do this? And which characterizations do we trust and not trust? And why are we trusting or not trusting them? And I break them up into groups and each group gets one of those questions. And we'll just talk about that. Normally um, with this, they can pull from the passages we discussed. Um, And I also have a few other passages that they can pull from. And they talk about in their groups to start unpacking that and moving from that observations that we were making as a class to moving towards that analysis with their partner or group members. And they spend 15, 20 minutes doing Mm -hmm. that. And then we talk about it as as a class, but those questions they, I tell them to use them throughout that novel. So they're supposed to keep them in mind and they're supposed to find passages that they think would answer those questions as we read. And so I'll keep going back to those questions when we meet and be like, so which passages are you noticing that describe Irene that stood out to you? Um, So kind of the homework with that is look for these specific observations at home. You don't have to start that analysis yet, but at least find those passages that you think could help us start to answer these 
And then in class, I'll ask like, so which passages um, do you think are describing that like community or whatever? And we'll start to go do that analytical work together in class of like they they'll read the passage that they volunteered um and then we start to be like okay so what is this telling us about Irene what is this telling us about Claire what is this telling us about the values of the text and what's going on here um and depending on like the reading I'll sometimes make those questions more specific like are there any passages that describe femininity and like how or masculinity or blackness or whiteness um, and sometimes I do that with small groups. Like I want you to find a passage that's talking about the character's femininity. And then again, we talk about it as a class. But so starting with that observational, with the geared question to moving towards breaking it down together. Yeah. And up. I think those guided questions are, are really like such a great strategy for developing students' critical thinking skills. And so starting off the semester by giving them guided questions for each reading and then moving into the end of the semester, asking them to come up with those guided questions, mm-hmm. maybe like as a group to kind of show like, you know, again, it can be really overwhelming to just say like, here, read this and tell me what you think. Well, I don't know <laughs> what I think about it. Um, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And so in my classes, I'll talk about critical questions, right? Like what critical questions are we asking and how do we develop those on our own? And so I, I, I really like that, uh, that you, you have those and then you build on them and add more to them to kind of show your students that trajectory, like that development. When you, because I'm interested in thinking about the students coming up with the questions, because obviously I ask my students if they have questions, but I don't, do this. Um, so how do you help them start developing those questions themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, for one, for one, um, I will ask for critical questions for um, smaller essays. So before you start this essay, what critical questions are you going to be addressing? Um, and I'll compare them to the kinds of questions we've used in class to analyze a text. The other thing that I've done before um, is something I, I got from a grad class where the homework was to submit like three to five discussion questions um, before class, every every class period. Um, but the, what the professor did was she chose, you know, only some of those, the ones that were examples of critical questions. And she would print those out, hand them out at the beginning of the class period. And so I've done something similar to that where students are like, I've done it weekly where, you know, submit your critical questions um, for the week. And then we walk through, you know, okay, here, and they're anonymous, right? I don't like Mm -hmm. say whose question is whose, but here's an example of some questions that, you know, they're not bad, but they're really only going to point us towards something like summary or sort of surface level observation. And here are some questions that are going to move us towards analysis, right? So like if you answered the questions over maybe on this side of the board, would you need to do anything besides summarize to answer it? Well, no, then that's not a critical question. But these over here, you'd have to do something else um, to kind of make the case for your answer. And so that's your critical question. 
that would be such a useful assignment with close reading and characterization to have them like, okay, I want you to generate questions for this week of how we can think about characterization in this novel, like what questions will help us um, and doing that towards the end of the semester as ways to prepare for that final paper, um, thinking about like what they've accomplished in the course, that would be really useful and to pra be practicing that throughout the semester. But I really like that you go through them with them so they can kind of see. Yeah. 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 Um, because it, and again, at the beginning of the semester, you're going to get a lot of questions that are like quiz style questions, mm -hmm. right? Like what happens in chapter one? And you're like, oh, that's not a critical question. Um, and and there, you know, what color shirt did the character have on? Like you, you say like, okay, I want a question about characterization, right? Because I do think it's important that you still give them some like a lens to look, to come up with questions, um, you know? So I want questions about having like femininity or setting or whatever. And a lot of times they'll start with those like really quiz style questions versus critical questions. But I also use critical questions in terms of, talking about how to develop thesis statements. Mm -hmm. um, and I do this in classes across the board. So composition and lit classes. So you can't develop your claim if you don't have a critical question to start with. How can you walk through that process of developing a critical question? Like There's something there about moving from the who, what, where, when mm -hmm. to why, how. Because I think a lot of times when we, when our students start asking those questions, it is like those quiz style questions of like, who did this? Right. What did they say? Who do they like? Who do they, uh, what happened here? And getting them to move to the, well, why did this happen? Why does the character feel this way? How do we know that? Why does this matter? <laughs> yeah. What are the stakes? What's the importance yeah. here? Yeah. Um, and I think group work. So like, it sounds like we both use a lot of group work in these situations because I think group work is um, so useful for students in terms of moving past observations. And so one of the activities that I'll do for close reading is pass out a passage from a text and a different one to each group and then give them a pack of sticky notes and ask them to put their observations and then they pass the passage. And so the next group gets, you know, this different passage and then they put their observations and then it goes around in that circle until you get your original passage back. And then your group has you know four other groups observations and now how do you put together some sort of thesis statement or a set of critical questions from this. Like, how do you move from all those observations to working on an analysis of the passage? And kind of like you, you've also read different passages now. So how is that played into how you're going to interpret your passage? That's really cool. So do they, what do they do for that analytical work? Are they like, writing a paragraph or are they like I've, I've done different things um and so in the past I've combined it with like thesis statement so I'll do this as like an assignment before one of their first essays um and say okay like how do we like have this conversation with them of like what's a thesis statement like and you know a lot of them will have like some sort of idea 
of like what it is, right? But how do you like, and I'll, I'll say, but how many times have you thought you had a thesis statement, but then you get feedback that there's no thesis statement. And a lot of them connect with that and say like, yeah, I, I thought I had a claim. And so we start by saying like, you know, that observation versus claims or analysis. Um, and uh, I'm kind of losing track of where I was at. What was your original question, Margaret? Well, once they have those observations, what do you have them do to move them from observing? Mm, yes, yes. Yeah. So what I do is say, okay, we've got our observations. Um, take stock of them, right? So you've got the ones that you guys came up with in the at the beginning, and then you've got maybe two or, th or three or four other group observations. Um, what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? What do you think needs more evidence and why? And then figure out, you know, what's your strongest point here? Um, and what questions does that observation lead you to think more about? And then once you have your questions, you can start moving towards, this is what my write-up will be. Um, and so usually it's like, either discussion-based where we just kind of talk through, okay, what do you guys, like, what's your analysis? And I like that the best. It takes more time, I think, but it also gives us the chance to, as a class, kind of interrogate those, those analytical points. If we have a group that's still kind of really in the observation and calling it analysis, when we do it as a class discussion, we can, we have a chance to have a back and forth and the other groups have read it as well. So I can say to like post to the class, okay, does this seem like analysis to you guys or observation? Is it still observation? Are these critical questions? Are they still kind of missing the mark? Why or why not? Versus if they write it up as a paragraph, you know, it, it, we don't get that back and forth. Um, that chance for, I don't know, like kind of active revision in class. Yeah. Um, and I'm a big component, like proponent of that, where go ahead and tell me what you think your thesis is going to be. And let's, let's workshop it right now and say like, okay, yeah, that's a good start, but here's why it's missing the mark. And then I think that they are better skilled to do that than with their own writing assignments. Yeah. So is this like an activity that takes 75 minutes or the whole class on this? I'm, I'm really like notoriously bad at a 50 minute class. Like I rush a lot. <laughs> um, I, I mean, uh, so when I was teaching lit classes at FSU, most of those classes were 75 minutes. Um, and so I would say that this is more of a 75 minute activity, but also an activity that you could potentially break up. Although, across two class periods. Although I don't know, I think sometimes with close reading, it's important to do it all in one sitting. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that. And also the logistics of it all, but, and having the day between, but it also makes me think like close reading in that one sitting, it also is dependent on the, the dialogue that you've been talking about. Like the students talking with each other, talking with other groups, talking with you, talking with the whole class. And there's something there which is why I think we use small groups so much with, when we're doing close reading is like effective close reading almost depends on a dialogue in some way. Like that's why we go to grad school where we talk things out in seminars. That's why 
um, when you and I are doing our own research, we are like, oh my gosh, I found this passage and it's doing this and we spitball with each other, that there's something there to move on from just observing. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm enjoying or being frustrated by it. Analysis requires dialogue and that's for another conversation, but I'm thinking about like to really get at the characterization your students have to be talking with one another and have to be talking with you. And I think, which means you have to figure out how to use a mix of modeling it for, for them so they can see how to do it. Doing work as a class where they can talk and everyone's hearing everything and getting that foundation, but also that small group work where students who otherwise might not talk are a little bit more comfortable doing solo work that they then share with a partner, like just giving them as many ways to somehow talk and somehow engage and not just be a passive observer, because I don't think they can build those skills without talking themselves. And like, there's going to be students who don't want to talk. So you have to figure out those ways to get, to get on everyone's level. I think you're getting at like why discussion is so important also in, in a lit class, how that open discussion with the whole class just doesn't always work. Um, and it can feel very defeating on our end, you know, uh, and that instead we have to think about like as many possibilities as are available to get them to talk to one another, to have dialogue um, and dialogue in which you know, I'm not centered as, as the instructor, as the expert or, or whatever, but dialogue in which they get to test those skills out with each other. Yeah. Because they'll correct one another. Mm-hmm. Like I, again, Mel Larson's passing, it's ambiguous enough. Like those passages we saw, they give you, she gives you enough concrete details that students have a way in but it's ambiguous enough that they'll start debating one another. And I think that is so helpful for students not to, if the characterization is clear, they can continue to rely on observations. Like, oh, it's obvious this character is this way. And we know this because of dialogue, or we know that like, and they just pull a quote and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get into ambiguous characterizations that we're getting this information, but like we know we don't have the full picture, we don't have a reliable picture, whatever, students start have they have to defend their understanding of the characters to one another. Like, oh, well, I think Irene is doing this because of this. Well, I thought there was this. And they do it respectfully, but then it gets into that analysis where they actually have to back it up. And they're not just all coming to the conversation already on the same page of like, yep, we all agree that Harry Potter is <laughs> the hero and here's why, <laughs> which I think you could do something like this with Sound of the Fury and like those range of perspectives we get on Caddy from her brothers <laughs> and how they still give us an incomplete picture. I know you um, have talked about like Toni Morrison and there's like a lot of ambiguity ambiguity with her characterizations. Um, and thinking about that, like giving your students novels that force them <laughs> to, to defend their position. Force them to not be apathetic about it. Yeah. And it's even like, 
I'm thinking even like, uh, I don't know if I would do this totally with like a Virginia Woolf novel. I looked over my bookshelf just now and I saw Orlando. I'm like, I think Orlando is too straight of a characterization, not straight, straight, but um, like, actually, yeah, they're all going to be like, feel the same, come to the same conclusions mm -hmm. about Orlando. There's not going to be that sort of debate happening. Um, there's not going to be I mean, you can push your students to that, to that, you can have them get into the nuances, but then you are doing it still. It's not, you're forcing them to reconsider their positions. They're not reconsidering it themselves. Right. And so just kind of reading for characterization with the right novel, like keeping that in mind and not just being like, I'm going to close read the characters in Handmaid's Tale. Right. Where I think... Yeah, I think you're exactly right on this, that it has to be a novel where there is some ambiguity with characters and how we're supposed to feel about them. Yeah. Or like, understand them, maybe not even feel about them, but how we're supposed to understand them. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's all I'll say. Like, because obviously all great novels have some sort of ambiguity in some way, Definitely. but it's not all with characters. And so right. just... Being mindful of that, I think I didn't. I didn't really consider till talking with you about it. But just that, like, yeah. yeah, we we sort of need this. Okay, so I really like that those activities, and I really like the way you walked us through Nella Larson and passing, and that activity. And also, I think we're going to talk about Nella Larson and teaching passing later, right? Okay. Am yes. I mixing that up or okay? I think so. I, schedule. This is just a I'm moving from being a Corregidora fan club to being well, I've always been a Noah Larson fan club. Yeah, but. absolutely. <laughs> um, but for that episode, we'll also have to talk about we'll have to talk about the ad the adaptation, the Netflix adaptation. Yes. Yeah. I still haven't watched it either. Me either. We need to watch a watch party. Which we can share, I guess, that with people at home. Watched the adaptation of Larson's Passing on Netflix, and we can do a little bit of a film club together with it. I so, feel like this is a really good preemptive episode for that. Yeah. So tweet us, email us, DM us your thoughts about Nell Larson's novel, the adaptation, what stood out to you. <laughs> yeah. Go through those questions that Margaret gave you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll, we'll include any sort of questions or responses, concerns we get. So Margaret, with that, I think, have we, I think we've pretty much covered all the ground we anticipated covering. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Think it's way by so fast. Like I'm, feeling like uh, didn't we just start like five minutes ago um, <laughs> I know I actually feel like the same way but I guess it's time to wrap up with dream courses which you and I have asked people to share their dream courses with us and so we can share our very first submitted dream course Ooh, I'm excited yeah it comes from Kara Ayers and She's a psychologist who her dream course is some sort of disability literature course and seeing the intersections of literature, psychology, disability studies. And that really got me thinking that this would be a really fun course to teach. Have you done anything sort of similar to that, 
had in the past? No, I think so. One thing in terms of getting these dream courses from other people is kind of seeing like, oh, this is something I just haven't really thought about as much. And I'd like to think about it more. Uh, But no, I've not. Have you? I haven't done a whole course. Um, In the past, I've taught um, Kay Boyle's novel, Plagued by the Nightingale, which is a very, very (laughs) forgotten modernist text. My students hated it to an unproductive point. So I only taught it one or two semesters. But it was useful for us thinking about disability because the novel is about a woman who is married to a man whose family has a fictional genetic blood disease that slowly like weakens their bones. Um, It doesn't really make sense medically, but, um, and so because of this genetic um, condition though, her husband does not want to have biological children. Um, and that is the crux of the novel is that the family wants them to have a baby. He does not. And she's trying to figure out how she feels. And so we talk about that in terms of the way disability is depicted in literature and it's like mm-hmm. how it's normally relegated to like a symbol of someone's moral or emotional lacking. Um, and how do we think about disability in cultural representations and the students start to do good work with that they just get side railed by how much they don't like the novel so I need to think through other novels that would be useful for that Um, and I think there's so many out there I just don't want the conversation to be about its symbolic purpose yeah so I mean thinking about uh, your goal for that kind of class would representations of disability offer us like a really unique interpretive lens for reading, but also the kind of struggle for civil rights um, or Mm -hmm. to to attain civil rights and full access to social institutions as in really contemporarily and wondering how that might play into conversations or or the text you choose, stuff like that. I was thinking about Flannery Mm. O'Connor and Good Country People was is the sort of um just comes to mind and that's a short story but but she's really interested in disability generally speaking so I think you could pull from she's from, from lupus yeah mm-hmm. and so thinking about not just a character who's disabled but an author who is kind of interrogating that in a landscape where it's it's not it's not a positive in or I don't know what it's in a landscape where it's just in, incredibly difficult to interrogate disability. Yeah. And like, I think there's something now I'm thinking about my personal reluctance to covering disability, like the way that it's just used as a sim- symbol, but maybe leaning into that and getting like disability in 20th century literature and how tracing cultural perceptions of it and responses and the reasons for depicting it. So like mm-hmm. moving from, oh, I'm making this character blind because they are morally blind or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Or it's like advocacy, like you're talking about, but also like thinking about how just like different perspectives, like I, not just representation, but those different experiences, different perspectives, 
and you can get into like techniques with that. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, also techniques across genre, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this could be a a class where nonfiction could be a part of the the kind of chosen text. Um, I'm thinking about like um, uh, Prozac Diary and it's by Lauren Slater. But yeah, like nonfiction offers something interesting. Uh, Poisonwood Bible Mm -hmm. uh, by Barbara Kingsolver, I think. Not... I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but maybe disability, mental illness in the sort of evangelical um, kind of sphere and how, I, I mean, obviously kind of harrowing what we could look at religion and disability and the ways that our, our kind of thinking and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable ha- has luckily changed Um, and maybe what those representations look like in literature yeah oh so safe to say this is now both a dream course for both of us and I'd like to hear like how other people would teach a disability and literature course but also what other dream courses yeah I I really would like to hear um like some thoughts on a disability course because I don't think that I'm qualified to teach that um I need more I would need a lot more of a deep dive into that that particular subfield but it is just really compelling interesting yeah so share your ideas for a disability literature course with us or your totally brand new dream course idea and you can share those with us on twitter at literaturely 101 or you can DM us on Instagram, and that is at um, Literally Podcast. And you can also email us at literaturelypodcast at gmail.com. So send in your ideas, your dream courses. We'd love to shout you out and talk about these ideas. Um, I'm really excited to keep Yeah, getting dream courses from other people. Yeah. Yeah, me so too. So thank you again to... Kara Ayers um, giving us a great dream course. I know. Yes, definitely. Okay, Margaret. Until next time. Yes.